Psalm 1, starting at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. All right, so I'm going to introduce the speaker today. His name is Josh Wilson. Uh, I've known him for about three years. He teaches at the same school that I do. Um, both he and his wife are teachers there, and his three kids are also students there. I'm teaching two of them at the moment. Um, they were originally in Ohio and on their way to Berlin, uh, trying to answer a call for pastoral ministry. And then they uh, saw the position in New York City, decided to bring their family here. On a personal note, I have to say, like, uh, hanging out with him at school is one of the best parts of my day. We get to talk about why well, I, I ask him, like, what's it like raising kids in the city? What do they like as they get older? What can we expect? How do their attitudes change and shift? And he always responds with godliness and humility and just a lot of wisdom from God. So I'm just honored to be able to ask Josh to come up here. So maybe as he comes up, we can give him a hand. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. And I echo all of those things. I feel like I'm always the one getting godly advice, but I guess that's what makes a good. I'm going to try to raise this and see if my heavy iPad will precariously sit atop this 1950s vintage music stand, which I totally love. I remember these. Uh, let's see. I think it'll be okay. If not, I can hold it. And if the camera falls again, don't mess with it. I'm just going to lay down like this and teach like that. I think that's how Jesus probably taught sometimes anyway. But I love this. I know that for some of you, it's meant a lot of extra work uh, and hassle. And I thank you for going through all that. But for my part, I prefer this. This is just awesome. And as you heard Fred read, our psalm today is all about um, nature. I mean, there are so many nature metaphors. And at the center of this psalm is one of the most well-known metaphors in scripture, and that's of a tree planted by streams of water. And this is, I've taught this passage a few times, but this is the only time that I've ever uh, taught it outside surrounded by sturdy trees. I think one of the biggest trees I've seen in a while is like right back there. So, you know, the app, maybe this is the sovereignty of God, like the application is all around us. There is only one theme in this psalm, and it's that whatever shapes a person's thinking shapes their life. Psalm 1 is showing that what you meditate on not only affects your happiness, your success, and your prosperity, but ultimately that what you meditate on will affect how you stand before the judgment of God. And so from that perspective, how much is at stake here in Psalm 1? You know, it's, it's hard for America to practice the meditation, I think. It's probably like one of the most important spiritual dis disciplines, but one of the hardest for Americans. And to give you an illustration, my son Jack had a soccer game yesterday at Riverside Park. And it was just uh, me and him. If my wife was there, this probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, but... We went to a soccer game and then we came home and about two hours after we got home, 
uh, Jack came running to me and he said, dad, I forgot my backpack. His backpack has the school books. He had a sleepover at a friend's house. I had like all kinds of stuff in there. And so there was absolutely no choice. I had to go back and get the backpack. It's one of those things as a parent that you're like really upset right now, but you've, you got me like you, that's the Trump card. I will. Yes. I will go back alone now fast. And so I did that. And on my way, I was thinking much about my sermon today, which is about meditation. It's all about meditation. But I could only see that hour as just a chunk of waste out of my day. It's like one hour hitting the delete button. It's just might as well not have existed. And here it was a perfect time to meditate. And I think one of the difficulties as we think about biblical meditation is that our whole culture has trained us to think that the life of the mind is not, it's a waste of time. Uh, and so this passage is so formative, it needs to be formative in turning that around and realizing we've got it wrong. Like our culture has really gotten this wrong. Um, in fact, one of the most important things, aspects of the Christian life is meditation. But as I think about the idea of meditation, the first thing that comes to my mind is Eastern meditation. And as I think about uh, and I think for, for most people, that's what they think of, uh, so, sort of new age meditation. I have an app on my cell phone uh, that gives me sort of music that uh, helps me to stop all the things I'm thinking about and just mellow out. In fact, even the stories don't go anywhere. Have any of you actually listened to like meditation stories trying to go to sleep or just nobody does? Oh, I'm weird, I guess. Um, but the, the stories have no plot. They, have a, they talk really slow. The point is to empty your mind. They don't want you thinking even in terms of this, uh, an arc of a storyline. So there are three differences. First of all, Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is about filling your mind. Secondly, Eastern meditation is stationary. Biblical meditation, you take it on the road. It's mobile and it can happen anywhere. And thirdly, Eastern meditation is passive. It just happens to you in the right conditions. Biblical meditation is active. It's about replacing your stream of consciousness with a new stream of consciousness. And on this last note, stream of consciousness. And by the way, let me ask real quick. Is my volume good? Do I need to talk louder? Thank you. Okay. Just give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. Like I'm real chill like that. Okay. If I need to talk louder, all right, I'm going to yell a little bit louder for sure. Yeah, well, that is bad. All right, I'll talk really loud. Uh, I read a book by John Acuff over the summer called Soundtracks. And it, it's not a Christian book, but it really highlights this idea. And he describes what I think uh, happens to a lot of us um, if we don't have a plan for uh, replacing the soundtracks, he calls them soundtracks, that go through our mind. So he says, imagine you go to a cafe and your favorite spot is taken, all right? Here's what he describes, which I totally relate to. Soundtrack, someone is sitting in our seat. Me, it's not a big deal. Soundtrack, are you kidding me right now? It's the biggest deals of all the deals that have ever been. That spot is perfect. The table is small enough that you don't feel bad hogging a big table by yourself. And it's big enough that you still have room to spread out your stuff. Me, like Goldilocks. Soundtrack, exactly. And the lighting is perfect. It's bright enough to get some work done, but also moody enough to feel like you're a character in a movie 
who is going through some stuff, but is going to make it. That table is also an adequate distance from the children's room, which means with noise canceling headphones, you can barely hear them. I demand we get some very private work done in this very public space, me. I think it's going to be okay. Soundtrack, how about you leave the thinking to me? What you're not seeing is that our only option is to sit near phone call guy, the one person here who feels empowered to have a loud conference call like he's in WeWork and not a coffee shop. This is a nightmare. I can't believe someone is in our spot. Me, it's not technically my spot. I don't own it. Soundtrack, not with that attitude you don't. Let's just go home. None of the work you do outside of your spot is going to do any good. Let's call it a wrap. This day is over. P.S. You will probably never write another book. Me, it's only 7 a.m. Soundtrack, life comes at you fast. So if you don't tell yourself and boss your mind around a little bit, that's the untended garden of your soundtracking. And I think we've all been there. Uh, maybe that happened even this morning. <laughs> Right. I mean, even when you found out the venue was closed, a bunch of soundtracks kicked in that you maybe didn't know were there. And they started to speak these kinds of things to you. But Psalms is all about replacing that soundtrack with godly soundtrack. So let's look at how it works. First of all, we read in verse one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And uh, the word blessed, it's not a bad word to use, but it, it actually means happy. It's, it's something like a combination. It doesn't just mean like blessed. It means happy because you're blessed. Uh, and it starts with telling that a happy person doesn't do three things. Doesn't walk, doesn't stand, and doesn't sit. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But this isn't actually three actions. It's one motion that's slowed down. And whenever I see this, I think of Lot uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Lot camped his tent near Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember. Uh, he walked, he stood, and he sat eventually. It tells us in Genesis, he sat at the city gates, which means uh, that phrase, which is kind of lost on us, means that he was a governor of the city. He actually, at the gate is where they would try cases. That's where the seat of governance was. So Lot did all of this, and we know he wasn't happy. It says it in 2 Peter. It says that he was tormented in his heart over what he saw and experienced there. So he was not Ashrei because he didn't do what it says in Psalm 1. Secondly, let's look at uh, verse 2. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. Uh, maybe this rings a bell for you. Uh, Joshua 1.8 says something very, very similar. It says, do not let, I mean, just look at the similarities. Do not let this book of the law depart out of your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Then you will make your way prosperous and successful, is what it says. It's all there. The delight, the law of the Lord, the meditating day and night. I mean, it's almost like, is someone copying from Joshua? Well, there's a guy named John Salehammer, an Old Testament scholar, who suggests that what you see here is actually a seam in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, you have the first five books, Moses, and then, which is the law, and then you have all the prophets. It's different than the English Bible. And then at the very end, you have the writings. And 
Joshua 1.8 comes directly between Moses leaving the people and the next sect of prophets. The same thing happens here. At the end of the book of Malachi, which is the end of the prophets, a new section in the Hebrew Bible starts, and it starts with Psalms. So what's the similarity? You think about it, Moses has left the scene, the great prophet, and what do the people have? They have the law of God. At the end of the book of Malachi, the office of prophecy had ended. What do they have? They have the law to meditate on, which for me, I think highlights uh, you know, the importance of God's law. So, um, you know, this word says, uh, this verse says that this is delightful. It's hard for me to imagine law being delightful. As we think about uh, the idea that, you know, for, for instance, American law, um, uh, uh, it's hard to think of it being delightful except as an intellectual exercise. Now, I understand the enjoyment of that. In fact, I took the LSAT back in the day and almost went to law school here in New York because I, I like those kinds of discussions, but I love them intellectually. They don't really do anything for my heart. And that's where the disconnect is because the psalmist isn't describing intellectual pleasure. He's describing something that speaks to his heart. Because God's law in the Old Testament reveals his justice and his love and his holiness. All right. So, like, how, how is it delightful? I'll give you an example um, of maybe one of the best known things in the Old Testament law is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How many of you heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Okay. It sounds barbaric. And, it, and that's one of the things, you know, sometimes people accuse Christianity of That's so barbaric. But before that, in the Code of Hammurabi, if you, it says that if you have a slave, and you are beating your slave and you knock out their eye or their tooth, then you have to pay an, an amount of money. Now, what does that mean? If, if you're rich, then you can do anything you want. doesn't matter. It's like, okay, I got the money. I can beat them. No, the, the Bible tells us, you know, in Exodus, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. If you knock out your slave's tooth, that's what you get in return. Now, tell me that is not a redemptive move. Tell me that doesn't protect the unprotected. You do it to somebody, that's what you get done to you. And so even though it sounds barbaric, it's actually a move in a redemptive direction. And as David considers this uh, kind of thing, it reveals God's justice, his perfect sense of justice. We could say the same thing about how it reveals his love and about his holiness, but to get our fingers around what David must have felt when he said, God's law delights. I actually have to maybe turn to something more visceral, like uh, having a big glass of ice water. This is the only thing I could come up with for this. After you've drank, uh, had like um, diet soda, like stale diet warm soda or something like that, having a glass of ice water or hearing a symphony after you've listened to a middle schooler's playlist, which I just did last couple of days it's, it's like you contrast that experience with a symphony and you get a sense of how delightful it was or if you lived in the ancient near east having honey uh, honey you can go into a grocery store and buy they didn't have sugar in israel you know so their diet consisted of of nothing sweet which is why it was a really big deal you know when samson found the honey and he went over to the dead carcass and scooped out honey you know how crazy is that well 
That's how big a deal it was to have honey because you just didn't get things sweet. And David says, your law is like that. It's sweet to my taste. So there was real delight in reading God's law. But if you notice, it doesn't say read God's law. It says meditate on it. It doesn't even say obey. It says meditate. Uh, the truth is most people in, in Israel couldn't read. And if they could read, they couldn't have afforded books. Uh, but that was actually perfect for the spiritual exercise that they were called to do because it meant they had to meditate. And the three things I mentioned that distinguish uh, the um, Western, uh, Eastern meditation from biblical meditation, they're all right here in this verse. I mentioned that biblical meditation is not about emptying your mind. It's about filling it. What do you fill it with? It says right here, the law of God. It's not active. It's not passive. It's active. That's wrapped up in this word meditate. This is a good place to talk about what that word means. Um, the word meditate here is, uh, it's a really funny Hebrew word. It means chew, chew on. And the Hebrew word is yak yak. It almost sounds like you're clearing your throat. Yak yak. Um, and so, and that's perfect because it's what a cow would do with the grass that it, or whatever cows eat. They would chew it and then they bring it back up and chew it and bring it back up. I mean, maybe that's not spiritual enough for us, but it is spiritual enough for God. Uh, that's the way he chose to describe our action as it relates to God's word, not reading it. And I read it this morning and I'm good to go because I did my section, but rolling it over, bringing it up throughout the day, chewing on it, getting the flavor out. You know, if you went to a really nice steak house and you saw somebody like cutting up steak and just popping it and swallowing it, you'd think they were kind of insane. Like that would be really weird, but that's what so many of us, that's what I sometimes do with God's word, pop it in and then it's done. That is not biblical. It says chew on it and get the flavor out of it. And then lastly, we mentioned it's mobile. It's not stationary. And again, we see that in verse two, it says he meditates on it day and night. How do you meditate on something? Space, although that is appropriate for sure. But you don't have to like carve out a space. And that's your only time that you can meditate. And it says night, day and night. I read a really good uh, little book by uh, navigators about meditation. It's real short, but it's really useful. It makes a point that like, have you ever gone to bed with a song in your head and you wake up and the song is still in your head? I'm, I have to do, I raise the hands again. I'm so curious. Is that just me? Only like two people. Okay. Okay. A couple people. Um, I don't know how that happens. How does that happen? I go, I literally sleep for like eight hours. And when I get up, the song is still there. That's crazy to me. And he points out that what that means is that while you sleep, you can have, you can soundtrack, you can have things going in your mind. And so the suggestion is why not soundtrack God's word so that while you're sleeping, it's in your heart and mind. He says, make that the thing you read before you go to bed at night, make that the thing you're meditating on. And you could actually literally do what it's, suggesting meditate day and night good news is delight here does not mean natural delight it's an acquired taste it could be you know instead of his delight in is in it could say his choice is in verse three uh it sets up another contrast it says he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers um you know the imagery here, again, you might miss us a little bit because we think of streams all over the place. You walk through the woods and you're bound to hit a stream. 
Israel was not like that. It is not like that. There's really only one river. In fact, it's called the river. Jordan means river. It's the only one there. And so this is not a river. This should actually say, like, um, he is like a tree planted by an irrigation ditch. An irrigation ditch is deliberately laid down in a specific place. It's designed to channel water. Um, and then a tree is planted there on purpose. Here we have trees not planted on purpose. It works out great because there's water underneath the surface. The water comes down and all of that stuff. That's not exactly what this isn't a wild growing tree that happened to be in the right place. This is a cultivated tree. We have to cultivate our day. We have to channel our time. We have to find our space, at least for a portion of that, and be very deliberate about that. It says it yields its fruit in season. Um, you know, you can't make fruit come out of the tree. All you can do is uh, water it and wait for it to grow. You can't like reach into the plant and grab a little part of it and like pull it out. That's the point here too. You can't force fruit in your life. You can, you can do like forced evangelism, force yourself into ministry opportunities and things. And that, those things are fine uh, and can be good and can be fruitful. But what's being described here is much more organic than that. It's saying when your roots are down, when they're saturated in God's word, fruit will come out. It doesn't have to be manufactured. You don't have to come up with a big program to do it. It will just happen as you live and as you're saturating God's, in God's word. Let's go to verse four. Um, you know, it says, not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. The center of this psalm, we're almost finished. The center of this psalm is a contrast between two types of organic life. The psalmist has chosen the most dramatic, rooted, permanent, fruitful kind of life to contrast with the most useless, rootless, insubstantial thing he can imagine that can still be called plant life. Um, and, uh, you know, this isn't that culturally separated from us, actually, because I think probably most of us uh, you know what it looks like when wheat or corn gets harvested. I used to live in Michigan and we lived around cornfields. Cornfields were everywhere. And a certain time of the year, <clears throat> you would see a tractor go by and all of this corn would get cut down. And if you looked, you could see dust flying out all over the place, just tons of dust. And they designed these tractors brilliantly so that the corn or the wheat would go directly into the bin and that everything that wasn't corn or wheat was just thrown away. That's the image that's being developed here. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have tractors, obviously, but what they did have was they would have these uh, stone steps that they would put in a very windy place and they had bowls in them. And you could still see these in, you know, in Israel. And they would have the, the wheat with the chaff and all the junk, and they would toss a handful of it up to the next step. And when they tossed it, the wind would blow it away. And then they would toss it up to the next one so that when you got up five, six, seven, eight steps, the chaff was gone and all you had was the, the wheat. Where did the chaff go? It doesn't matter. It's completely useless. And so at the center of the psalm is a tree planted by the water, which yields fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. It's an evergreen tree. It's an evergreen, I don't even know if that exists. It's like an evergreen tree that bears fruit. And on the other hand, you have useless chaff. This is the way scripture chooses to describe someone who is practicing biblical meditation 
and someone who is meditating on the counsel of the wicked, counsel of the unrighteous, and so on. And I think we have to broaden that out from just literally hanging out with people to company being whatever form that is bring, however that's getting into your life in my life, whatever that looks at, like, however that counsel is getting in, I think uh, we could translate into our own day. So it says verse, um, verse five, it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners at the assembly of the righteous. You know, life comes at you fast. I, <laughs> I read that thing that said life comes at you fast. The verse I just read, verse four, they're like shaft that the wind blows away. There's no development of the metaphor because it's over. The form matches the reality of what happens. You read that and it's like, that's it. Oh yeah, we're on to the next verse already because that's how fast it happens. And uh, several years ago, uh, there was a preacher at, at our church that said something that really stuck with me. And he said, um, he had everybody stand up if they, re I won't do this with you, but he said, have everybody stand up if you remember, your, if you know your mother's maiden name. Of course, everybody is standing. Stay standing if you know her mother's maiden name. Most of the people stood standing. Okay, I have that one. Then they then he said, stay standing if you know her mother's maiden name. I would say a good portion of the people had had to sit down at that point. Right. There were a few left. I think I'm still good to go with that one. Then he said, stay standing if you know her mother's maiden name. And then you've got like the one person who probably couldn't, but just wanted to show off or something still standing. I don't think anybody, maybe somebody could, but I think most people could not remember. And then he said something that I will never forget. Think about this. Life happens so fast that in four, four generations, your own family won't even know you well enough to remember your name. You know, we think uh, about making a, a difference in being remembered. I don't know. Maybe we don't think about that. We don't think about what happens that much, perhaps. But for me, that was profound. That's what's being described here. And because of that, it motivates me to think, how can I be rooted to stand before God? Because I am not going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be forgotten. You know, that's a very biblical metaphor. He calls us grass that withers. It, it flourishes for a moment and then it's, then it's gone. This is the antidote to that. It says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They chose to stand at the beginning of the psalm. They stood in the presence of sinners, they were able to stand. But therefore is like an equal sign here. It's just, it's almost mathematical. They did your calculations or they did not do the calculations. And so the natural byproduct of that is not standing before the Lord. And then lastly, it says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We could point out uh, some things about Jesus here. I want to look just for a moment as I close up here about how this connects to Christ. First of all, Jesus' very first sermon starts with blessed in Matthew 5. This psalm starts with blessed. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus adds his own blesseds. And if you remember, when he gets to the end of that sermon, at the end of chapter 7, it ends with a fall as well. He says, therefore, those who hear these words and put them into practice are like a house built on a strong foundation. Those who hear my words and do not put them into practice 
or like a house that the storms of life come, there's no foundation and they crash. Jesus equates his words with scripture. He says, you know, the psalmist says, follow God's law. Jesus says, follow my words. They are completely on par. But, you know, I also want to mention lastly here um, that Jesus did this stuff. He, he did everything in this psalm. He did it perfectly. I mean, we know he meditated on God's law. He used it with Satan in the wilderness. He ran circles around the Pharisees with his knowledge of the law. He was a meditator. We know because of the, some of the things he said. But in one sense, he did not stand in the judgment. When he stood before God, when he hung before God, I should say, on the tree, which turned out to be a very fruitful tree for us, uh, he didn't stand. He was judged a sinner because he was bearing our sins. And so I just feel like I want to end by saying this is not self-help. Um, this, is a, this is a program. This is an exercise for someone who has accepted that work on the cross. And then it's, I've accepted the work of the one who lived perfectly on my behalf and died as a sacrifice. So now I can be sanctified. And the meditation is the work of that sanctification. So may you discover biblical meditation. May you delight in God's word, not just the law David knew, but the fulfillment of the law, Christ himself. May your roots be saturated and situated in the river of God's word. And may you bear fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your truth today. We thank you that uh, your law is perfect, that it delights our soul. We thank you that we have something just so much greater than that in the person of your son, Jesus, who kept the law perfectly. And now our souls can be delighted uh, by the goodness of your son, who could argue with the Pharisees and run them in circles. And yet the children wanted to sit on his lap. And God, there's a peculiar glory to the person of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would add to our meditation on your word, our meditation on the goodness and the beauty and the perfection of your son, Jesus. I pray that our hearts would be directed and cultivated to think biblically, to soundtrack your word into our lives this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.